One of these was, what is the precise rate at which one should descend during the song Shout when it's played on a wedding dance floor? Because I, and this happened because basically I was at a wedding and I, you know, descended too quickly as one is potentially wont to do. And, you know, you're just like wiggling on the floor for a minute and then trying to figure out when it's going to be done saying a little bit softer now. And, you know, I made a mental inventory of this humiliation and uh, strove to write it. Welcome to Emerging Form. I'm Christy Ashwanden. I'm Rosemary Watola-Tromer, and this is a podcast on creative process. Christy, I'm excited today because we're going to talk about data. And, you know, no one ever says that. Yeah. Well, no. Some people say that. (laughs) But I am excited about what we're going to talk about today. I am too, because, you know, I'm a data nerd, and uh, I spent many years as a data journalist at 538. And today we're going to be talking to one of my former colleagues there, who I absolutely love. Some of my favorite work there was actually done in collaboration with him. So, Rosemary, tell us a little bit more about Walt. Well, I can tell you that he makes math really fun. (laughs) Walt Hickey is the deputy editor for data and analysis at Insider News. He works on cool stories and supports the newsroom through data journalism. In 2022, he won the Pulitzer Prize for illustrated reporting. In spring of 2018, he launched his creator-owned daily morning newsletter, Numlock News, all about the cool numbers buried in the news. And it's funny and it makes you smarter. He also predicts the Oscars in the Numlock Awards supplement, a seasonal pop-up spinoff of Numlock, and he is the author of the new book, You Are What You Watch, How Movies and TV Affect Everything. Let's bring him on. Welcome to Emerging Forum, Walt. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And we're so glad to have you here. And Christy has been telling me so much about you. (laughs) And uh, we're so excited to have you, you know, be part of our, our program, especially since you've been one of our big proponents. Thank you. Um, For people who haven't read it yet, can you give us a two-sentence summary of You Are What You Watch? Totally. It is a deep, exciting, fun, rambunctious dive into all the different (laughs) ways that movies and television and pop culture and some of these things that people just kind of dismiss out of hand are actually really fundamentally important to how we experience the world, how we see ourselves in that world, the society uh, that we build, and, and just kind of the values that that we uh, purport. It's basically just a, a a fun look through all the different ways that that pop culture affects people. Okay, I just have to say that of all almost one hundred people we've had on our show, that was probably the most exuberant <laughs> response. There we go, <laughs> and that was thrilling. That was so exciting. Like I just got a little rush of, oh my god, I must read it. No one's ever said rambunctious before. It's amazing, Walt. How often we'll ask someone like, just give us the quick and dirty of your book, and they'll say, well, I can't. Like, oh, I can't. You know, and I'm even one of those people. Like, how do I say it in a sentence? I actually have gotten better over time, but you're just so on point. It's Great. We will probably get to this later in this conversation, but I thrive in like limitations, whether it's like, mm. you know, seven short stories a day for a newsletter or like you have two sentences, give me the best you got. Like those are oftentimes yeah. very, very good creative environments to work in. So, <laughs> Oh, that's so interesting that you say that. That is a topic that comes up a lot on this podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about how this book came about? Yeah. You know, you and I worked together when I was at 538. 538, for those who might not totally be in the loop on it, is a data journalism website. One time it covered pop culture, economics, science, and more. Now it has a slightly more limited slate. But nevertheless, you and I had basically doing 
the integration of data journalism in, in various different fields. I was doing pop culture at the time, and I felt like over the course of the five years that I was there, I kept on kind of orbiting a story that I hadn't actually mm-hmm. written yet in the course of interviewing folks who either work in movies or make movies or study movies or just care about movies. You would always get an anecdote just kind of thrown off over the course of chatting with them that's just like, oh, no, like here's a way that a movie has fundamentally changed my life, mm. whether that was the thing that inspired them to do that, the thing that they're doing, whether that was um, seeing somebody on screen that resembled them mm-hmm. and how meaningful uh-huh. that was and maybe motivated them to yeah. pursue the sciences or motivated them to mm-hmm. maybe learn a new thing or or, or, or learn uh, or maybe take on a new career that they hadn't thought was the kind of thing a person like them could do. And you just yeah. kept on hearing this. And after a certain number of times of hearing it, you kind of come to the conclusion, well, there ought to be something there. Mm-hmm. And so this book was my attempt to kind of get at that question of just like, you know, how do these things really affect us? Yeah. You know, we spend an inordinate amount of time of our lives watching things and, and enjoying things. And for all that investment, a lot of the conversation about it has almost come off as dietary of like, oh, no, you shouldn't right. waste your time doing this or you should only consume good stuff mm-hmm. like this. Whereas I think that, like, as I was reporting it out, I kept on finding new and interesting ways that these things have an impact on us that, you know, positive, negative is is substantial and, and appears yeah. often enough that I think that we have to start giving some credibility to it. And this might be a great time, by the way, for you to give a few examples of this. Like, it's interesting to me that it's all over the place, like in terms of careers that people yeah. choose and what they name their children. And, you know, would you maybe just give us a few <laughs> specific examples? Yeah, totally. So I would say that the book kind of takes an arc from talking kind of small stuff in individuals. So for instance, like when you watch a movie, Mm -hmm. it's not just a visual experience and it's not just a audio experience. There are repeatable physical signatures associated with films. Uh, There are researchers who monitor basically the air composition and the, and the volatile organic compounds that your body's exhaling over the course of the film. Oh my gosh. Wow. And what they find is that the pattern at which people exhale different chemicals during the course of a film is repeatable and shows up the same way in the same movie across different movies and across different screenings. The study In particular, that I really (laughs) dug about this, they looked at the Hunger Games catching fire and they looked at it must have been more than a dozen screenings of this. And they found surges in isoprene at repeatable elements of the film. And isoprene is what happens when you contract your muscles. So when you get real tense and you're real worried, uh your body is is enacting a chemical reaction in your muscles, Uh the waste product of which is isoprene. And so, you know, there's a physical element to these films that we are actually manifesting that we don't necessarily appreciate while it's happening. And so simply kind of beyond how that registers within us, why, Uh you know, why are all horror movies blood curdling? What's that sensation and why does it happen repeatedly? All of these things are evidence towards these things having a more substantial effect on us than we necessarily broker when we just have something on in the background. But then you get into the effects on society and the things that we kind of see. I mean, you can see this in baby names. You can see this in the breeds of dogs mm-hmm. that people like after 101 Dalmatians <laughs> gets re-released in the early yeah. 1990s. Dalmatians become one of the most popular breeds in America <laughs> from like 50 to like seven. Wow. You see this in the in the interest in different kinds of sports. I mean, mm-hmm. Disney reinvested the proceeds of the Mighty Ducks movie into just buying the Anna ducks and as a result you were able to kind of stimulate <laughs> yeah. interest in hockey as a result of, of vhs sales yeah um, right you can see this 
it, it just happens constantly. Uh, there's some interesting effects that you see, for instance, with the military, where the military began to realize that by loaning out aircraft carriers to films that glorified professions of the military, they were able to reach a new generation after Vietnam with films mm. like Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as a result, you can just kind of see both active and passively mm-hmm. um, movies are having a significant impact when it comes to how people perceive the world in which they live. Um, I, mm-hmm. Some of my favorite stuff was the stuff about travel. Um, I got a chart in the book uh-huh. basically looking at arrivals at Auckland Airport in New Zealand. And it is uh, uh, basically a, an upward, uh, you know, line that has two big waves. And the first big wave comes after the first round of the Lord of the Rings films oh, came right. out. And the uh-huh. second big waves comes after the Hobbits films comes out. So, uh-huh. so we joke that they're an advertisement for the beauty of New Zealand. But no, they're literally they an advertisement for the <laughs> beauty really of New Zealand. <laughs> It's a lot of Americans to hop on a plane uh-huh. ride that's one of the longest in the world. Like, so, uh, uh-huh. you know, th- yeah. there's evidence, all sorts of different angles. We can talk about the governmental angle, the individual angle, even the kind of the sociological angle. But it just there's a huge body of work in this that was really exciting to find. Yeah. Well, and now here's another thing. So just in terms of you creating this book, are you able to look back and see these are the ways that my choices have been influenced too? I mean, are you able to draw personal direct lines? Yeah, I definitely, you know, in the introduction of the book, you have to lay some of your own personal cards on the table. Yeah. And uh, a movie that was like so important to me was Jurassic Park. I talk about Jurassic Park in the book as being an actually huge motivating thing in the field of paleontology. All of a sudden, a lot of people who didn't necessarily want to be a paleontologist started wanting to be a paleontologist. (laughs) Um, You saw a huge (laughs) influx of funding into the field. Paleontology is somewhat Uh a notoriously inexpensive science to fund uh, compared to some of its peers. Mm -hmm. You're basically paying for camping trips is how some of the paleontologists (laughs) that I spoke to uh, described it. Right. Um, True story. And so as a result, whether it was just like some contributions from Universal or just the huge interest in science that came after, after, paleontology got a real funding boost and a lot of science was done and a lot of new things were discovered as a result of the kind of ocean of funding and the ocean of interest that came in. I liked it for a different reason, because that was the coolest mathematician I had ever seen. Oh. And I had always had a knack for math, but uh-huh. math was never necessarily a thing that was considered to be you know, fashionable, interesting or, or anything kind of beyond simply functional. And I think mm-hmm. that that film in particular definitely made me more interested in it to the point that I eventually majored in it in college and, and obviously have gone on to a career in data journalism where a lot of that is infused. So I, I think that like you can track your personal background to all sorts of different experiences and revelations, but like sure. there were no mathematicians in my family. Right. Like I did not come from a neighborhood mm-hmm. that had a lot of mathematicians. <laughs> and so like as a result, like it was it was a. Uh, movies can be really enlightening, I think, in that regard to kind of show people what opportunities exist that they didn't necessarily know had existed. And and for me, that definitely was the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that really gets to the importance of Mm -hmm. representation, which I know is something you you worked on a great project at 538 about a kind of a new version of the Bechtel test, which is a whole nother thing. But I want to ask you about something else. And that is you have a whole chapter in the book titled What Stories Do to Their Creators. Yeah. And I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit, because here we're talking about, you know, we've been talking so far about the influence of like being the, the, the audience member, but how do stories create the people that, that or how do they influence the people who create them? 
I am so glad that you brought it up because when you first reached out, I was like, oh, they're really going to dig chapter eight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we do. And so chapter eight is the last chapter in the book. And the arc of the book in general is that it gets bigger. It starts off like with what goes on in your body and then it goes to what goes on mm -hmm. in, in people and in identities. And then it goes on to sociology and then there's some geopolitics and then it goes like what lasts and, and, and what endures and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And once we've gotten it as big as we possibly can do, the last chapter like kind of really just brings it back down again mm -hmm. and just talks about acting on creativity and what creative environments do to the people who actually do it, which I think is is a particular interest to, to your listeners. Yeah. I really enjoyed that chapter, not the least because it made me learn things and I, I admit is the wrong word, but kind of like realize things that may or may not have just kind of been implied. Mm -hmm. One of the most exciting parts of that that I'll just kind of dive a little into is that a bunch of that chapter is about fan fiction. There's mm -hmm. some excellent research out of the University of Washington from these two magnificent researchers that I interviewed that basically looks at what fan fiction does to the people who write it. Ooh. And fan fiction, for those out of the know, is unlicensed, unauthorized, fan-created works that are derived from existing media properties. Yeah. So, for instance, if I want to write a Sherlock Holmes story and use the Sherlock Holmes characters, and I want to do that, you know, the Arthur Conan Doyle estate doesn't really have too much impact on the matter at this point, but nevertheless, I didn't create Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. That would be creating fan fiction. And, and fan fiction, for a while, was was often kind of derided. I think that it had a very low mm -hmm. status place in creating of work. I think it was oftentimes it had feminine connotations, which I think inherently sometimes would kind of compel people to diminish what it was doing. Yeah. But people have been doing it constantly since the 60s, but like if not even longer, the Aeneid yeah. is, is fan fiction realistically. Like uh, <laughs> at a certain level, like, you know, fan fiction has always been with us, but like there's only recently now that we've had the internet, now that we have a record of decades of people making fan fiction, these researchers were mm -hmm. able to kind of track, okay, so an individual writer starts writing when she's 13. We can actually trace this person's writing development over the course of five to 10 years Ooh. because they're publishing a chapter every month. And as a result, uh -huh. we can then analyze, there's, a, there's you know, basically a, a statistic that determines just general writing variety and ability, one might say. Yeah. And we're able to kind of track that for an individual over time. We can't do that with traditional authors right. at yeah, all. That's like, amazing. Like we don't have that kind of record. Like even the most comprehensive libraries yeah. don't have the first drafts. And like I, I wrote a bunch of ugly first drafts, yeah. I'm sure when I was in high school, I'd, those are buried. <laughs> um, but, so we just have this trove of information. And what they find that is just so compelling about it is that number one, fan fiction just really puts a rocket on the back of a person's ability to write. And mm -hmm. the reason for that they contend is, is kind of multifold. The first is that, you know, so much of reading and writing ability comes down to just how many pages you bank. The more that you do it, inherently, mm -hmm. it's a fairly linear relationship. And I right. think for a long time, people had kind of deluded themselves into thinking that it had to be Moby Dick that you were reading or that a thousand pages of Moby yeah. Dick was inherently better than a thousand pages of Twilight fan fiction. And what we're increasingly finding mm -hmm. is, number one, nope. Number two, the... <sighs> It's very hard to compel someone to want to read a thousand pages of Moby Dick, but if kids are signing <laughs> up to read a thousand pages of Twilight fan fiction on their own, more power to them, right? Like if they're yeah. if they're voluntarily doing it, it's a thing that's a passion of theirs and they're driving. Um, this should be encouraged, if anything. Mm -hmm. The other element that they found that was really, I think, particularly illuminating was that one of the key determinants of this improvement in writing capacity, one might say, is feedback. And mm -hmm. a lot yeah. of the feedback on these kind of sites is fairly surface level. It's like, I mm -hmm. also 
like this character. Thank you for writing about this this relationship. It, it brings me joy to read mm-hmm. because J.K. Rowling didn't have yeah. the spine to do it. And so, like, like we'll, right. oftentimes just give positive feedback. But what they found was that feedback was the most directly linked thing when it came to this improvement. That just mm-hmm. being kind of nudged along by people within your interest group, maybe being given some actual qualitative feedback when it came to, hey, here's a, you, you could improve on this next time, but I really dig it. Keep on going is one of the best things that you can do. And so we try to fake this with like peer mentoring within structured academic programs, but like you have this mass distributed peer mentoring as these researchers describe it, yeah. that could not be more powerful. And so I think that, that that was really illuminating for me because I think that it really underscores just exactly how much of this comes down to the community that you are investing yourself in, surrounding yourself with mm-hmm. the kind of people who are going to give you the encouragement that you need and also maybe the feedback that you need while at the same time really kind of coming at it with a love for what you're doing is just a, a genuinely positive way to live one's life. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. This is exciting too, because my daughter is absolutely into fan fiction. She's just an absolute fan fiction junkie and she's embarrassed about it, you know, and she's she's like, I should be reading better books. And I I think, but you're reading. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's always been a great reader, but yes, it's like you say, you know, it isn't Moby Dick, but this girl reads how many teenagers are reading every night. You know, she is. A hundred percent. I think back to when I was a kid and having interviewed some folks who study this kind of stuff, not just these researchers in particular, but I also talked to folks who basically study like what reading does for kids and and why reading Mm -hmm. things that are oftentimes derided as perhaps trash or disposable by adults is actually just kind of really good. And like, (laughs) I just think back to when I was a kid and I was like, it turns out that the single most important teacher that I had was the Pizza Hut Corporation willing to give me a slice (laughs) of like free pizza in exchange for 50 books over the summer vacation because it is just pounding those words down. That's great. I love that. Yeah. Hey, so something else I think that is really important for storytelling is data. And I don't know that we've ever asked this question before on this podcast, but most of your work uses data to tell stories. And will you tell us about your process for putting together a data story? Where do you begin? And maybe you even have a particular story that you could tell us about maybe your analysis of fortune cookies. (laughs) Yeah, that's a fun one. When I was at 538, we did an analysis of what fortune cookies are actually telling you. Like, do you get bad fortunes? Like, how often is it related to money? How often is it related to relationships? Life in general, just aphorisms. And I'm glad that you picked this one because I always try to think of one that like really conveys this main advice, which is like, I find that the most creative thing to do, the thing that gets the juices flowing is, is very much just like talking to other people, being in the world. Having conversation like, you know, when you're out to dinner and you, you know, like basically making note of the conversations that you have. A lot of times I think that people are listening just so that they can figure out what they're going to say next. Yeah, right. But I think that very much just like active listening and kind of not like, quote unquote, trying out material, but very much just being like, yeah, like it is kind of fun. I wonder where these things come from. Where, where on earth do fortune cookies come from and, and who's the guy writing them and, and how are they making them? Right. Mm-hmm. Other situations are, are just like, uh, you know, there was a column that I had at 538 that was extremely silly. And the title of the column was Bar Fights with Walt. And this, these are all true stories because Bar Fights with Walt, the entire conceit was here was the thing that I got into a drunken argument about with a buddy of mine. True and story. I decided to use math to figure out who was accurately correct. And one of these was uh, what is the precise rate at which one should descend during the song Shout when it's played on a wedding dance floor? Because I, and this happened because basically I was at a wedding. And I, you know, descended too quickly as one is potentially want to do. And, you know, you're just like, 
wiggling on the floor for a minute and then trying to figure out when it's going to be done saying a little bit softer now. And, you know, I made a mental inventory of this humiliation and uh, strove, to, strove to write it. And so a lot of it is just kind of being very present and, you know, yeah. having a big file of ideas. And then kind of once you have those and once you kind of have a reason that the information ought to be determined, then you definitely like figure out the best way to attack it from a data perspective. In the case of that shout song, that was just literally a stopwatch and then counting out how many yeah. a little bit softer now as it was so that, you know, you could have this information ready to go. In the case of the fortune cookie one, it was like, what is the maximum number of fortune cookies that I could conceivably expense to the Walt Disney Company without getting HR no to notice? And uh, yeah, the answer right. was, I believe, a thousand. And, uh, uh -huh. and then we just basically counted them up, categorized them, ate like pigs for days, and um, were able to kind of come to some conclusions about here's how this you know, thing that is an element in all of our lives actually kind of works just by going to ground and, and doing the, the reporting on it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So what was the TLDR on uh, the, the fortune cookies? Wait, wait, uh, what is TLDR? Sorry. The too long didn't read. Too oh. long didn't read. <laughs> um, TLDR is, it is damn near impossible to get a negative fortune. And I don't yeah, know, I, like, right. I think it would be fun. Like, if I sold a fortune cookie that was like, hey, by the way, 30% of these are bummers. So you can feel really good <laughs> if you get like a, a win out of one of these fortune cookies. Right, yeah. It's not just like, you know, faint praise or wisdom or things like that. It's like, no, no, no. You're literally, you're at the craps table every time that you order Chinese. This is going to be fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> this just reminds me, Walt, I once got a, a spam email that said, literally, your life is crap. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, this is like, I know this is totally spam, but it sort of bummed me out. Like, yeah. I was like, still personally insulted and sad. Like, how dare you? <laughs> I know. You robot. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, we have to get to this because it's really important. You won a Pulitzer fucking prize. I did do that. Oh my god! It's the weirdest thing that has ever happened to tell, me. Tell us um, everything. How did? Where were you when you found? I mean, were you sitting there like you're like, okay, today's my day, listening for the announcement, or like, where were you when you found out? I was, so I got a text from the editor in chief of of the newsroom on the Sunday before uh -huh. they announced it on a Monday, and he was like, hey, you should come in tomorrow. I was like, that's interesting. Uh -huh. Okay. And like, you know, I had worked on a couple cool projects in the newsroom. I kind of figured it would just be like, you know, maybe somebody in the newsroom like got fortunate and, and you know, this is going to be a fun time. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's in 2022 and the newsroom is kind of dead just because we hadn't done a huge return yeah. to office at that point. And I'm like, I'm not seeing many other people here. I, I don't know. I, I kind <laughs> of assumed that this was a text that went to a lot of people. And I am now increasingly of yeah. the information that it is not. And so, you know, we have a little bit of anticipation. We kind of expected, well, perhaps we were finalists for something that was very cool. The, mm -hmm. the background for all of this is that over the course of my time back at Insider, one of the projects that I've kind of been starting and steering was we've been doing comic book adaptations of news stories. Mm -hmm. And so rather than, yeah. you know, do a written story, do a video, you know, I have I love comics very much. I have a long time relationship with them. And we had this idea after a very visually heavy story was a success to basically start just kind of straight up doing webtoon style, digital first mm -hmm. scrolling comics of the kind of stories that it was very hard to get a camera in places and yeah. the kind of stories that we found you know, had been covered, but maybe like text wasn't getting people over the hump because, you know, the thing about visuals is that like they really do drive a lot of empathy. And so we had been yeah. kind of honing what we were specifically doing for about three years at that point, doing mm -hmm. all sorts of different stories 
whether it was kind of talking about the Trump administration and some like what happened essentially behind the scenes during some of these bribery scandals early on that led to the first impeachment. Uh, we did some fun stuff about the royal family. Uh, that was a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, we did some stuff about the pandemic. And, and basically, we found that the comics were succeeding the most when they were able to be based on an individual testimony of what occurred in a place that just mm-hmm. simply didn't really possess any visual iconography. Yeah. And the story in particular that we that we won for was basically the story of Zumrat Dawut. She's a, a refugee. She's currently in the States, but she is Uyghur and she and her family, she's a mother of three, were living in in Western China when she was taken and arrested mm. and sent to one of the uh, you know re-education detention facilities. And she mm-hmm. experienced firsthand the oppression that the Chinese government was executing in a systematic basis against Uyghur people. Mm-hmm. She experienced a great deal of degradation and, and, and imprisonment and, and, you know, had to endure just an unimaginable amount of, of devastating and, and awful treatment. Mm-hmm. And eventually her husband, who's a Pakistani national, was able to get Pakistan to get her out. And then eventually mm-hmm. they were able to flee the country and then make it to the States. And so this is a, basically a comic adaptation of that story, which, again, like w- when it comes to the treatment of Uyghurs, it is very, very hard to get a photographer into a right. detention yeah. camp in Western China. <laughs> to, 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 yeah, obviously. good luck with that. And so we kind of felt that there was a visual paucity. I mean, even when I was right, like, you know, we covered stories about the treatment of Uyghurs. You know, you only had one or two images at the time on Getty yeah. or on, on the AP images that actually conveyed, oh, here's a bunch of people kneeling down in the camp or, or, or things like that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the story, we were really, really proud of it. It was a chance to kind of do the classic journalism thing of here's the thing that people ought to know more about. Out and and told in a format that yeah. uh, we think really illuminated a lot of what happened, and uh, we published it, and we were very proud of it, and that was that. And then five months later, we got the incredible news that we were recognized with the Pulitzer Prize for illustrated reporting and commentary, uh, which was a total shock. We we genuinely had no <laughs> wow. idea that was happening. Uh, did, like we because so awesome. uh, like that category had been the editorial cartooning category, uh, and I knew mm-hmm. that we were submitting stuff in that because yeah. that was one way that we were able to kind of justify our budgets, right? Like yes, we're investing in <laughs> right. the school format, but of course we're gonna yeah. you know apply for stuff, and that was the first year that illustrated reporting and commentary was the current category that we have now. And so mm-hmm. it was it was a complete shock. We did not expect it at all. We were so proud of it. And and obviously, I am so yeah. proud of that story. Reporting it was... Uh, Deservedly so. Yeah, yeah it's it, fantastic. It was one of the most remarkable and uh, it, important stories that I've ever worked mm-hmm. on my career, no questions asked. And so I, I mm-hmm. am very, very proud of the win. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was very cool. That's great. And I just have to ask, like, what is it like to win a prize like that? And you're pretty young. Like, well, can I ask you how old you are? Are you 30 yet? I am now 33. Yes, I'm no, I'm no longer oh, okay. baby. Wall. I know that at 538, I was the baby okay, of the bunch. I, know, I, I was, think it was baby wall. But yeah. no, I, I, I've got some city mileage going on here. Uh, right, but no. Right. no. Yes, I'm 33. No, it is, again, a very, very young for, for this honor. It was, again, absolutely floored. I mean, that in actually the most literal way, there's a video of it and I yeah. dropped to the floor as it's now. I did not like yeah. did, this was so fundamentally. So like, Christy, you'll know, but like I am a huge fan of the Academy Awards. Yeah. And I've always oh, been yeah. a sucker for when a person who doesn't think that they're going to win an award wins an award. Like Olivia <laughs> Coleman winning an Oscar. And when that was you. She was not favored to win that Oscar by prognosticators such as myself. Yeah. Like, but like just the, the spellbound speech that she was able to give. Yeah. And I felt like I contributed to the ecosystem because I did not. <laughs> expect this was coming did not like even as it was happening i was like we'll be a finalist at best tops right and then um you know it's 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 
absolutely the most insane thing that has or will ever happen to me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's like my favorite, like former people of 538 text chat was just like, holy shit, (laughs) oh my God. So amazing. So is your life perfect now? (laughs) I'm not going to lie. Times are good. I'm very happy. Like I've been working on a book for five years. It's finally coming out. That's great. Yeah. You know, I'm very proud of the work that I'm doing with Insider. I think that that's a, I have a fun time there. Mm-hmm. It's been good. You know, you got to appreciate the good times when you're happening. So I'm having a good time. I'm getting married in a few weeks. That's awesome. I'm very excited wow. for that. So That's yeah. so well, great. A partner. That is so <laughs> <Amazing>. great. <laughs> that's great. And just what a, what a wonderful run you've been having. That's been great. And uh, we've got a lot more questions to ask of you, including, I want to ask a little bit more about some of your, your particular stories, which are always so fun. But we're going to do that in our bonus episode that will go out next week to our paid subscribers. So stick around. But in the meantime, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And hey, by the way, I'll just pitch it because if you, you don't have to do it every week. You should pay to subscribe to this. Support media that you like. Support creators that are acting independently. Aww, you should you thank should you. value the you know if this if this means stuff to you. You should if you have the opportunity to and you have the means to. You should absolutely subscribe to this. This is uh, emerging form is great. I, I'm very 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 happy to be a guest. Finally, I've been a fan of you all for so long. So this is a this is a genuine treat for me. Thank you, Walt. Thank you. You've been listening to Emerging Form. This is Rosemary Watola Tromer, and my co host is science writer Christy Ashwanden. Our fabulous audio producer is Leah Shaw. Our music is created and performed by Kira Kopostansky and edited by Leah Shaw. Kate LaRue designed our logo. Jack Mueller, of course, inspired our work and the name of this podcast. As he always said, you must obey the poem's emerging form. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Emerging Form. Did you know that for just a few bucks a month, you can become a paid subscriber and get bonus episodes every other week? Go to emergingform.substack.com to sign up. And if you really want to help us out, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>